Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. Hi everyone, my name's Jason. Welcome to another episode of the Timeout Podcast. Today we're very fortunate to be speaking to Dr. Nick Enright, who is currently a ophthalmology registrar at the Iron Ear Hospital in East Melbourne. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate the invitation. For those of us who haven't met you before, Nick, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself? So I'm 35. I'm a registrar, an eye registrar at the INE, where most of the Victorian trainees are. Um, I'm in my third year and it's a five-year training program. At home, I live with my wife, Anna, and we just had a baby, eight-week-old baby, Eloise. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's great. She's sleeping next door. Um, and it's taking care of her. So it's it's a good time for lockdown, actually, as new parents. Nick, you've already spoken a little bit about what your day's like at the moment. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're listening or reading at the moment and if there's anything that you'd recommend? Yeah, I listen to a lot of audio books. So I guess there's some overlap with listening and reading. And I listen to a lot of podcasts, actually. And some, not many of them relate to medicine, but there's, there's sort of eye-specific podcasts, which I've found pretty useful throughout the training. I'm sort of ri- I'm listening to this book called Atomic Habits at the moment. And Atomic Habits is, is interesting. It's sort of, I'm only about a quarter of the way through, but it talks about that you essentially are a um, product of your habits. And, it, and it's good. I think it's very relevant for doctors. I think it's very relevant for surgeons that you essentially will be judged upon your uh, behaviour and your behaviour is made up of your habits. And um, just a few things about mindset that I found interesting in that book, like um, everyone sort of has the same goals, uh, share a lot of similar goals, but the differentiator is how you sort of go about your processes and how you're improving your processes. Yeah, I've actually just um, picked up a copy myself. I'm oh, hoping yeah. to get through it sometime soon. Yeah, um, you'll have to let me know how you feel about it. It is interesting because, you know, when we talk about surgery and even like I think generally in medicine, there's a lot of repetition in, in what we do. You know, I find that in medical school, there's like the, the same topics yeah. keep coming up and, yeah. uh, you know, even just the way that you conduct yourself around other people. And obviously, surgery, um, it's procedural, it's repetitive. You're doing the same procedure multiple times. So I think it's definitely, definitely relevant to us. Absolutely. In terms of outside of surgery, you mentioned that you've had maybe a a longer, a little bit less traditional path to where you are at the moment. If there's one thing outside of surgery that you could be doing, what would that be and why? I think that the answer to that changes with time as I get a bit older too. I did like some reviews at university, like um, some comedy sketch stuff, which I I love doing and sort of had, like love spending time doing that, but it's not really a viable long-term thing, especially if you're doing medicine. It's like the opposite to medicine. (laughs) And then I've always been interested in tech, but never had formal training in that. But I could could have seen myself working in that sort of context and, and also wouldn't rule it out, which is one of the cool things about ophthalmology. Um, it's possible that one day I'll be involved in tech-related stuff. So I haven't closed that door. That door. Like comparing um, what you said, you know, focusing on tech, a lot of our other guests have talked about that they would rather be doing something creative. Um, a lot of the uh, older profs said, you know, mm. I would 
see myself being a musician or yeah, writing yeah. or or doing yeah. that sort of stuff um maybe it's maybe it's a little bit of a generational thing as well <laughs> yeah probably and i think a lot of old older physicians and surgeons they they have these huge vast amounts of talents that they sort of have haven't been able to pursue uh, maybe it is generational. Like they're just probably like unreal at the violin and like <laughs> had to put that on the back burner for um, surgery. For surgery, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, maybe one day if, when, they, when they retire, they can, um, <laughs> they can pick it up again, I yeah, guess. Yeah, that's right. In terms of those interests outside of um, Ophel and, and surgery, I mean, obviously at the moment you've got your hands full uh, with, a, with a new baby, but do you think you have time to like pursue those things? Um, you know, I, I know it's obviously you've got probably a very busy schedule, but do you ever find the time or chance to pursue some of those interests? Currently it's hard because of the baby and I have my exam in January to get through Opfal. So not heaps of extracurricular stuff right now, but like I've been doing med for eight years or something. And I feel like through, and, and then med school before that and throughout I've been able to just do whatever I want. I feel somehow I've been able to do the fun stuff that I've always been interested in quite a lot throughout the training and throughout med school in terms of time, what I've given up to, to be able to do that. Um, I guess, yeah, a few, a few things have sort of gone off um, the priority list, but to enable me to do, you know, all this fun stuff that I like to do and do med. So uh, I guess that that's what something has to give. Do you find that compromise that you have to make in terms of, the, the time that you're able to dedicate to other things. Do you find that balance sometimes difficult to navigate as a registrar compared to when you were a resident and a medical student? Do you find it any different? I actually think you probably you might have heard this from other people, that thing you get clarity as a registrar and your um, requirements of you and your time become more tangible. So then you can allocate time more effectively i think but when you're a resident when you're a resident or in med school the feeling is you could always be doing something mm. to progress yourself it's a, and it's a dreadful that dreadful feeling so then to spend time baking a cake or or, or going for a run or something you feel you probably feel like oh, i shouldn't really be doing this so much if i've got a paper that i need to be finishing but i found once you're once i became a registrar the amount of time I had to spend doing work stuff was about the same, but you sort of knew what it was. Like I have an exam coming up mm. and I just have to get through that. And then, or I've got surgery tomorrow. I have to read about the patients, but that's like a bit easier to allocate. Uh, well, I think that's something that we definitely want to explore a little bit later in the show. I guess we'll find out a little bit more about you and the way that we always like to do this is to start with you growing up. I believe you grew up in New South Wales. No, I, I um, came from Melbourne. I, I was Melbourne, born in Melbourne, um, but spent I, I spent time in New South Wales through med. Pretty typical, like Melbourne little boy life. Like went to public school for a while. I was lucky enough to go to private school for for, for my senior school. Had a a tight knit family and a brother and a sister, but no one was really med. No one had done med or no one had really thought about doing med. And then school was fine. I didn't, I didn't excel at school. I, I went okay at school, but not, you know, it's, you, you actually, you take for granted how incredible some of your colleagues are, how well they did at school and how incredible academically a lot of your peers are. I had, had a lot of fun at school and did a lot of sport. I did drama in year 12, completely atypical 
approach to the science-based university stuff, but I could have sort of optimised myself a bit more from that point of view. And then I did physio. I did physio at Melbourne Uni. Uh, after a year of doing art science, actually, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I did physio, which I enjoyed, but didn't see myself doing that long-term for work. And then at the end of physio, I, I started looking at doing graduate medicine. And then I started doing that at Sydney Uni. So you were in Melbourne until basically the end of your undergrad, and then you did the postgrad med in, in, Sydney, in Sydney, and then you yeah. came back to Melbourne after that. There are so many things we I take for granted in like the last two minutes of what I was just saying. But I had no health problems. I had no mental health issues. My family didn't. Like we were just incredibly lucky to have a really amazing upbringing. And I think all of that, it's funny how you just sort of re- rattle off how you grew up. You yeah. just sort of take for granted that I had just like a dream run. Yeah, I guess when, when you think about it, there's a lot of things that kind of have to go right for someone to even end up at medical school. Yeah. You know, let alone be a a consultant. So you said that you kind of maybe took a bit of an atypical approach to, you know, optimizing yourself for like a medical kind of pathway. And it seems like maybe you weren't thinking about medicine until a little bit later. Did it ever cross your mind, like when you were in high school, that this is, you know, something that you saw yourself doing? Uh, I think I had the feeling I'd like to do it, but didn't feel like my marks were getting me to a place where I could easily do that in Melbourne. I did apply for medicine, didn't get in anywhere. And I sort of probably just took myself out of it a little bit, which I'm sure a lot of people do. I think it's easy sometimes just to say, oh, that's not actually my goal and and to sort of shy away from things a little bit, especially when you're 17, 18, you know, it's... um, quite hard to yeah it's difficult to have that perspective i think yeah quite hard to to tell everyone your goals and and go for them because it's scary what drew you to physiotherapy what did you like about it i think i like the people who are doing it so i got a sense of those people i always liked health and i could see myself doing it at the time that i applied you know one on time one on one time with patients mm. or hospital based work both seemed pretty interesting to me and, and maybe also in the back of my mind, you could do medicine at the end. Although that probably wasn't front of mind when I started doing it, actually. Okay. And the pathway to graduate medicine wasn't as well trodden, I think, or just not well known that it's actually a reasonably um, effective way of doing med. And so, I mean, in terms of your interest in medicine, so I guess mm-hmm. the, the health interest is always there. You know, you said that like when you got to the, towards the end of your physio degree, you said that it wasn't something you saw yourself doing long term. What prompted you to say, uh, let's give medicine another crack? Yeah, I, I think I was surprised by some of the physio stuff. It's very like manual, um, repetitive work, which I just thought there's a ceiling on that. Like I just didn't think I was cut out to actually do that physically for a long time. But the academic side of things was interesting. They're very, they're a really academic specialty. The things that I liked, I saw in medicine. Also, the ceiling for, for professional development and things like that was lower, I thought, for physios, unfortunately. There's a lot of excellent ones, a lot of um, amazing academic physios and amazing physios in the hospitals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it just doesn't have that same pathways medicine nor the like international collegiality that medicine has and stuff like that so Mm. i just thought medicine medicine had more of those things that seem really interesting to me from physio without much downside 
Although yeah. there's heaps of downside, but we'll probably talk about that. <laughs> you know, when you were when you were at uni, at least initially early on, were there any sort of extracurricular things that you did that you felt really added to your perspective on like what you wanted to do or I guess changed you in some particular way? I think in terms of extracurricular stuff, nothing really was med related or that drove me towards med. Like I did these comedy shows, which were heaps of fun and probably opened, opened me up to new groups of people and new ways of thinking and friends that I still chat to all the time. But I think that was more of a social development <laughs> <laughs> yeah. rather than um, steering me towards medicine. You come, as you said, from like an undergraduate physiotherapy background where you've already been exposed a little bit to patients and uh, work in hospitals, whereas I think the majority of the people listening here, at least at postgraduate courses, uh, we've been primarily science-focused in our undergrad. So, you know, we haven't had that interaction with patients. We haven't seen what hospitals are like. We don't know what that whole clinical environment is. Like we spend most of our time in undergraduate learning about, you know, like biochemistry and physiology and immunology, like these yeah. sort of medical sciences, but not necessarily learning in the clinical environment. So when you started at the University of Sydney studying a medical degree, did you feel like you were like different or out of place compared to some of the other people there at all? No, I think, I think the, the makeup is probably different to what you're describing at Melbourne Uni, but there's a lot of biomedical people, lots of pharmacists and lots of physios. So I wasn't, I wasn't different, but maybe there was also like this 10 to 15% group who were completely different. Yeah. So it was like economics guys and old lawyers. One of the best things about the course is all these people providing these crazy perspectives, people like who had run, you know, investment firms or something and, and found their way back to doing medicine somehow. And you could sort of pick and choose who you spend time with. One of my closest friends did economics and stuff, and he's just incredible. Whereas if you're more homogenous as a group of probably undergrads would be the, the clearest example, you have just have less choice of, of who you spend time with. When you started sort of your time at medical school, was there a particular moment, like did you already have this goal that you wanted to do ophthalmology in mind or you know was there something else that you were pursuing before you decided that you wanted to go after ophthal no it took me it took me a bit longer than most people to decide on ophthal i probably after uni i fully decided and um during uni i was sort of a bit more undifferentiated and there were a lot of things i knew i wouldn't do but could have still gone become a physician or a different kind of surgeon maybe and it's I actually found it really hard to determine what I would like to do or be good at, especially the surgical exposure is sort of hard to get as a med student and to understand what a day-to-day life in a registrar and consultant would be in that specialty as well. So I remained fairly open uh, for better or worse once I'd finished medicine. And I even did, I think I did some ED research at the end during my med degree and and didn't have... um, huge interest in that but it just was the opportunity that that came up for me in terms of like a general inclination did you feel that you were more inclined to the surgical stuff or the medic the the sort of physician stuff 
I think I think I was feeling I would like to do surgery. And then I started gearing up my rotations for that once I started doing internships and residency. I liked being in the operating theatre more than maybe some of my peers, but also still found it hard and a little bit intimidating and sort of made me really nervous to be there. Like I didn't relish it and thrive in that context. Some people do, and some people just find their way in theatre a lot and seem to develop these relationships quicker than others with surgical team. I don't think I was one of those people necessarily, mm. but I liked being there and, and what they're actually doing and achieving during that time. So it probably was that. What things would you do to try and get some more exposure to those opportunities, you know, given that you liked seeing that sort of stuff? You've got to find the right person. Generally, they're a bit senior, but not too, not too senior. Um, a senior registrar or a junior consultant yeah. is a good type of person to speak to to tell them that you're interested because everyone resident down is sort of pushing each other out of the way a little bit to get into theatre in the first place. So they don't want to be worried about introducing the med student. So a, a comfortable senior registrar almost always respond to a med student being interested and in wanting to come to theatre. It's good and that you can be- provide a buffer between them and the demanding consultant. <laughs> you know, in terms of having that conversation, how would you actually have that conversation if, you know, this is maybe for more some of the preclinical students who've had their placements disrupted this year. If they are, you know, if you're listening and you are someone who's interested in surgery, but you're not really sure how to get your foot in the door, like how do you actually have that conversation with a, with a senior reg? Like, how do you even know who the senior reg is? Yeah, exactly. It's funny that hierarchy is so opaque sometimes. Well, the nurses know who the senior reg is always. So you can start there. And then I think it's a straightforward conversation. If you're frank and tell them, you know, you haven't seen much and you'd love to see what surgery is like, you'll know pretty quickly if that's viable with that person or not. So no problem if it's not going to work out, you haven't lost anything. And then I think it's helpful if you know what's required before you're allowed in the theatre. If you speak to the theatre staff or the nurse in charge of the theatre, they have a very good idea about what the student needs to do. Like you might need to pass mm. a, a, a scrubbing competency assessment or something like that before you start and just to know where the change rooms are and stuff like that and what to bring. If you can just like make that less one less thing that the reg has to worry about when you're together like getting all those things in order and if you can you can say i'm i'm accredited i'm allowed to come that goes a long way so essentially just making it easier for them to integrate you into the team by not having to worry about the more baseline skills and competencies of of what you need to do yeah you gotta love that and med students sort of thought that far ahead as well It, it demonstrates that they're different in your time as a medical student, was there any particular moments that you had or any particular bits of advice or sort of, you know, key learning moments that you had with registrars, residents, consultants that um, you think really shaped the way your career was after medical school? Yeah, I think one thing interesting that it's hard to get ophthalmology exposure as a med student. Um, yeah, absolutely. Full stop. And that's another long discussion. But so then the things I took away were from generally for, from surgical rounds and watching how the consultants and senior registrars behaved and conducted themselves and taught during the rounds. And to have continuity with someone like a senior general surgeon who would teach five of us for an hour and impose on his patients and, and watching them interact with the patient's 
like that. That that is probably the most valuable time I had, and and made me like surgery actually to have operated on someone. They're probably at their most vulnerable right after that surgery, and then to have that relationship post-operatively, I found very interesting. So you graduate medical school. You're now working as an intern, um, and you decide that you know surgery. Although it's not really clear exactly what sort of surgical specialty, but you know that surgery generally is the way that you were going to go. So can you talk to us a little bit about, uh, in terms of you know you said that you're you know being a bit more intentional with your rotation selections and all that. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the thoughts that you were having at the time and what things you did to maybe increase your exposure to the surgical specialties and really try and answer that question of if it was something that you wanted to do. So I did. I worked at St Vincent's in Sydney as an intern, and you get a sort of, and as an intern, you get a general mix of rotations. So to try to really try to maximise my time in the surgical rotations, because you only get one or two. I felt think that I was just purely being there more, like mm-hmm. just just trying to make yourself very available and trying to make it demonstrate clearly that you're interested in that rotation as you're doing it you know vascular surgery i'm not going to be a vascular surgeon but Mm. i'm i want to clearly impress these people so they can help me get my next job because a lot of it a lot of it's about just getting your next job when you're in internship and residency as well and then i I was also thinking so i started thinking about opthal then too even though st vincent's really had a small ophthalmology department as well so I couldn't really find exposure to that there either but you I needed to start heading that way so I started looking at to research opportunity and um, postgraduate more postgraduate study Mm -hmm. which is something um, you probably talk about a bit on this podcast um, sometime Um, so I started to try to enrol myself in the appropriate things and start to, so I did a master's of, of ophthalmic science at Sydney Uni in, starting in internship as well. Uh, so that's, those are the main things. I, th- I was in Wagga Wagga in first year actually for three months and they had a good ophthalmology department actually. And I spent more time with the ophthalmology reg there, which yeah. is strange actually now that I think about it. And I reckon that's when I was like, this is a very good specialty. And he seems like a very good clinician. So that's enough for me to start sort of looking into that more. I guess one of the things that we kind of talk about on this show is we like to focus on the non sort of academic side, but obviously we all know that surgery is competitive and we know that ophthalmology is probably one of the more competitive specialties within surgery, you know, you wanted to go for ophthalmology. How are you going to get to that goal? How are you thinking about that challenge? Once I started working, then I think knowing clearly the requirements of the specialty application process is obviously very important. I also thought I don't have much research at all and getting research and presenting things probably takes two out two years um, turnaround for something that you start. So mm-hmm. I'd need to start in first year to be relevant in third or fourth year. And then I sort of started to look at uh, big picture stuff like, would I be happy to trade anywhere in Australia for this specialty? For surgery in particular, I think that um, if you aren't able or willing to travel interstate for either an unaccredited job, 
or to be on the training program. You, you shut yourself down a little bit. You can still obviously achieve that. A lot of people do. But you, if you're open to working anywhere in Australia, that's something you need to decide early as yeah. well. And then each state for ophthalmology sort of have different requirements. So some states like it if you've um, had, had more jobs and some states like it if you've done, done a master's in ophthalmic science. So I thought to combat, you know, both of those things, I should at least start this master's. Mm-hmm. So then I'd be relevant in Sydney which I'd be, I would have been happy to work anywhere really to do ophthalmology. So those are the things you could do. And I was starting to look at in the first week of intern, not the first week, but beginning of internship. And one leads to, and the good thing about the masters was one that leads to research as well. Yeah. It sort of forces you to do a bit of research. So that probably was the good, probably one of the more beneficial parts of that masters is that, forces you to do a bit of research that you probably wouldn't have done otherwise. Uh, again, like, do you think it's common for people who are generally pursuing surgical specialties, I guess, in their junior medical officer years, so, you know, internship, residency, you know, PGY, like up to three or four, to be, you know, working, but also doing those other things alongside work. Do you think that's a more common thing that you see nowadays as a registrar? Yeah, yeah I think you talk to anyone, it's pretty universal that they are, doing some form of course or graduate diploma and it's not even to um, stand out it's to remain (laughs) in the same stratosphere as the other people you're competing with yeah Um, so and each each specialty seems to have that required postgraduate thing Um, like radiology has an anatomy course that takes a lot of time gen surge i think has a similar thing Mm. masters of surgical skills or something like that and i think it's pretty uncommon to to say like i'm interested in gen surge and not be doing something a lot of things at the same time to get you there i mean i guess maybe if we could just park that conversation for a second i just want to move back to knowing about the requirements because again i think this is something that's not really talked about at all in medical school when i've talked to residents it's like what are you doing to like try and get there? And then they say, oh, you know, I'm doing all these things. And I'm like, well, why are you doing them? I said, well, you got to know the requirements. But how do you actually find out about yeah. the requirements? Like, how do you know what you need to do? And maybe even more, more generally, like what is the actual structure of the GSSE of getting onto the set? I think it can be quite confusing if you don't have a big picture view of how this, the whole process actually happens. Yeah, I think um, I'd lo- I would have loved to go back in time and listen to this podcast at the end of med school because i felt i felt exactly the same like it is so difficult to determine how to get onto a given specialty i think in general the things to keep bear in mind is the principles always similar for all the specialties but then the specifics can change even in the time that you've gone from first year to fourth year Mm. when you start to actually start applying so be sensitive to the fact that things could change like ophthalmology changed the way that they decide on candidates um, in the last year and they've introduced a, a aptitude test for i don't I, I didn't have to sit it so i don't know the name of it but it's like a decision making test that everyone right. has to do now and it, it feeds into their 
candidacy. For Opfal, they do publish what their expectations are probably on the, the RANSCO website. And then the thing to be wary of, it's not completely transparent, that document. And I think for each specialty, the transparency is very different. Mm. So I think General Surge, they have a point system. You sort of know where you stand reasonably well and mm. you can actually accumulate those points with some efficiency. Whereas the ophthalmology i think your best resource are those documents but also speaking to the most relevant people are the people who got on that year um, Mm. or the year before because even i am not completely up to date with how people are getting on now for ophthalmology Mm. and i'm third year it's pretty scary the changes Um, really quickly yeah. yeah so i i actually some people ask me some advice and i can give uh reasonable general advice yeah, but for like specifics on how to do well in like that exam, or how mm. to perform well in the new interview format, which changes, mm. um, I would refer them to a younger person who's just got under training. But I actually think the time to find out is ASAP. Yeah, don't stress out about it, but find out about it. Also, the person if you speak to a first year registrar in Opfel, they also know their whole cohort. Mm. So they're like, oh, he, he did this scholarship and this person's done this, this PhD or, or all of them have done a PhD. <laughs> yeah. But they, they, know, they know what worked for the people around them and for themselves. They are like the resource for that sort of thing. Let's say that we were interested. So website, ask registrars. I mean, in terms of how competitive specialties are getting these days, you know, like talking about doing a PhD, doing extra courses, you know, all these different things that different people are doing. Did you find that with ophthalmology being one of the more, I guess, competitive because there's less spots, being one of the more competitive specialties out there, did you find that competitive aspect was challenging to deal with at all? Yeah, I probably don't thrive in that environment too much. I think everyone, ev- everyone who was applying had fatigue about that. And it actually becomes like a war of attrition mm. to a certain extent. Not very rarely. And I, ca- I guess I can speak about Opthal more than other specialties, but that people get on first time and um, are like PGY three or four. And Opthal are, are, are good at, in Victoria anyway, at um, giving more junior registrars opportunities. So I don't even want to start talking about plastics and stuff, which is a, it's an entirely different world that you, the, the conversation would be completely different. Your question is about that environment. And yeah. I, think, I think it was always um, very collegial and positive. I think actually everyone was actually rooting for each other mm. and, and wanting good mm. um, for each other and could sort of, not everyone was completely happy to compare notes a hundred percent to maintain some sort of differential yeah. <laughs> from the other people. I think that actually it's one of the nicer things is to know the people prior to getting on and then getting to know them better when you're on. From that point of view, that, that probably was one of the upsides that in general, it's actually a toll on the spirit. I mean, it is, it is weird in a sense, right? Because in at least Victoria with our current system of how we, you know, go through medical school and we get the Z score at the end. And, you know, the, the people that you're sitting next to in a weird way, they're going to be your colleagues one day, but you're also competing with them. And at the same time, when you get to this specialty application level, registrar level, again, like these people that you're working with, you're all going for the same jobs. So you're kind of competing, but you're also 
colleagues and you also know these people personally. I guess the interesting thing with you is that you said, you know, you felt like this took a bit of a toll on, on, on your spirit at times. Like, I mean, do you think that that is a normal part of the process? Like, let's, let's talk about whether it's right or wrong, but do you think that that is just part of the process that you kind of have to go through and maybe it's something to even expect when you're applying for um, competitive specialties these days? Don't expect to not go through that. I think the co- our college, you know, their process was always fair and you weren't feeling, no one was feeling like, oh, they're banging their head against the wall and not getting getting the results they want. Mm. The feedback was reasonably forthcoming between mm. years. So I think they, they're doing everything they can to sort of make the process as um, tolerable as possible. Mm. And like the interviews where the environment's really a positive thing and it's an opportunity to demonstrate why you should be doing what you want to do. Uh, so I can't criticise any of that. And then despite all of that, it's, it sort of comes and goes because you get quite disappointed on a, you know, after you hear that you didn't get on or you didn't get an interview. So it's a lot of highs and lows. I actually think part of the process, part of the selection process is how much you can tolerate that and yeah. that, that time passing when you feel like you're not progressing. And it's, it's, a, it's a bit sad that it's sort of built into the selection process a bit. They can't avoid it, all the specialties. There's a lot of people who stop doing it, stop trying. And it's hard to find those numbers, but you encounter them once you're a bit more senior. You meet people who, um, unfortunately, they just had to stop trying to do that for a while um, because of family stuff or, you know, something's always, there's always a reason. So I think um, expect it, Mm. you know, but don't expect to like it either. Medicine overall, all of it is hard and there's no sort of getting around that fact. When when people talk about like resilience, like being resilient and I, I think that that's fair, but on the other side too, it's sort of, it's just got to accept that like it's difficult, like what, what we do and it's competitive and there's a lot of very able people that are going for the same positions. In terms of like once you got onto the program, how did your perspective on training, on ophthalmology change if at all once you sort of get over that hurdle when you're on the other side how does life change how does how does how does your perspective on things shift if if it does um i think that ophthalmology Torah is probably peculiar in that when you're first year they're very very um supportive and they teach you so much in that first year without burdening you too much with a lot of um responsibility and and stress and long hours so the actual transition is huge because you're often doing something quite busy the year prior all my expectations for the program were met very quickly and i was expecting it to be incredible and what it was and still is but then you could ask someone you know if i was doing vascular surgery or neurosurgery Mm. i think first year for some people could be the most stressful year they've ever had and it depends on heaps of factors like what department you end up in, whether you had to go into state to do that, your level of experience before you enter the training program. Huge amount of factors to determine how happy you are in the first year of training. Opfal is, is pretty, I feel like, well known for training surgeons from the fundamentals up. Mm-hmm. They don't expect you to be able to do microscopic surgery because you can't yeah. access it. 
Yeah. <laughs> so they facilitate that with all these virtual reality microscopic training, which is incredible. Yeah, it sounds sick. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's special. Whereas if you're doing busy jobs for other specialties, then you're, you're required to be able to do dozens of procedures safely, um, supervised or unsupervised. So the conversation is really different. Maybe life as a registrar now. At the moment, I think you're, you said you're working nights at the moment. Is, yeah. is that right? In maybe in terms of like a typical day for you, can you run us through like what that kind of involves? Again, for students, we don't really often get to follow a reg around for the whole day and kind of see into the mysterious world of, yeah. of the surgical registrar. So can you take us through that? So this is when ophthalmology gets quite good. There's often no ward around. So <laughs> not many inpatients. Yeah. And some people, I like ward rounds actually, I like taking care of people with, um, with a team. But you normally... I have no one to see in the morning because if you did surgery the next day, they will come to a clinic. It's all very civilised. A typical day would probably be you operate for half of it and you're in clinic the other half. Mm -hmm. And so you'd be up early, getting to theatre early, getting prepared for each of your cases because you have a little, few little things to arrange for each person. Mm -hmm. So if we're doing cataract surgery, which is a typical thing, each person needs their own lens that we're going to put in the eye after we take the cataract out. And then they might have certain requirements that you'd speak to the anaesthetist about. And if you have time, you look, you examine the patients as well, which is nice before the surgery. And then, so you might be there at 7.30, which is still pretty good in the scheme of things, mind you. Yeah. Um, and surgery might go, you might have four surgeries and then you're finished up by lunchtime. Mm-hmm. Rarely do things go over time or get very complicated and there's a lot of support there you know i'm doing this with a consultant at this stage Mm -hmm. um so surrounded by support from anesthetic and surgical staff and the nursing staff so it's actually that's that might be um specific to the iron year who's it's quite a well-supported environment then clinic would be like a typical clinic so lots of patients Mm. There's some bosses there. You, you're as a registrar, you need to get through a bit of work. Plenty of opportunities to learn. The bosses will often just stop and teach you for a while. So the teaching component of ophthalmology is probably one of its strengths because there's time to teach in the clinic and mm. surgically. People are very good at it and willing to do it. So you get taught really well. So, but clinic might finish at five or six. Never goes too bad. And um, then there might be some teaching in the evening, either in person, used to be in person, but now it's on Zoom, mm-hmm. which works fine. You know, you, yeah. could, you could do it while you're on the walking home or whatever. And ophthalmology is, t- is well taught by Zoom. Um, a lot of visual, really visual specialty. Mm. Um, so lots of different pictures and everyone seems to have their, a collection of um, images to to help with their own teaching. Yeah, I think that the particular things about that day are that the ward interaction's low. You're generally out on time. The surgeries are reasonably predictable. You, you generally won't hold up a lot of staff by something difficult happening or not many urgent cases will be added to your list. Mm. It's, that's very, I mean, that's for other surgical specialties, that's pretty rare. Yeah, it's unusual. Often your, yeah. your list is like, I know I've got these two cases, but 
there might be two more patients that aren't even in the hospital yet. We might be here till 9 p.m. You know, I used to do jobs where you'd round after theatre at like 8 or 9 p.m. You'd do a board round. Mm. You'd be home by 9.30 or, and that was a pretty normal day. And to be back at 6 a.m. for a ward round. It's chalk and, it's chalk and cheese in, in some ways. Mm. I think the, most of those things are good, but you do miss, you lose some stuff by not having a ward presence and not having a huge team around you which some people really want those things, which I understand. Like, I get that. But if you want to be able to t- pick your kid up from school, like, you know, ophthalmology is a great choice. It's amazing. Before you got into the program, you did a few, you did a year with Neurosurge as an unaccredited registrar yeah. as well. Yeah, that's right. I guess in terms of even that unaccredited registrar job, how do you manage that just constant grind of the hours? That's I know I've always wondered, you know, you see these registrars, like as a student, you go home and they're still there. And then when you come in in the morning, they've already been there. What happens after you leave hospital? Like, how do you manage that grind as, as a registrar? Yeah, it's funny. You'll evolve, Jason. You'll be surprised with what will change about you by the time you're doing these jobs. And it becomes like innate. And I think a lot of the drivers, uh, some of it is being able to help your bosses and to be known as a good worker in that team. But I think the majority of it is the patients. And you actually don't realise that that's why you're there at 10pm if you're sort of, it's like, oh, I'm just doing work. But actually you're just trying to sort of help someone. And I think that all the incredible registrars I've worked with who flow through that day and not, don't seem to be hating being at work and feel like they just need to be, that they belong there at that time it's all driven by helping the patients and helping the the other staff so helping their immediate colleagues and the nursing staff and probably they're therefore making also the boss who's on call's life easier as well so there's heaps of external external factors that are sort of pushing that person towards getting through work till 10 p.m so I think that that's how they physically do it. But it's a, it's a huge problem. It's no secret that that's not sustainable in heaps of different specialties and a lot of work's being done to try to remedy that. But some, I think some people don't even think twice about it and start to take for granted that they're at work that much because of the nature of their work. And I think that the unaccredited, it's hard as an unaccredited reg because the motivations are different as an accredited registrar. I assume our audience understands the that there's heaps of unaccredited registrars in all different specialties and they're people waiting to get on the program mm. um, and doing similar roles as the accredited registrars. But often there are subtle differences between those jobs in a hospital or large differences between the jobs. But if you're an accredited registrar, you're starting to see that um, soon you'll be a boss caring for these people too. So I think that that connection. And also they need to see heaps of patients. They need to see heaps of cases to be good at their job at the end of their exams. Yeah. Cause, that's, cause the that's responsibility actually, for, is on you then, right? At the end. Exactly. You're actually working, you being there late, even though it's not ideal, will help someone in 10 years time. So if you can connect those things, I think a lot of people find that that's a huge driver to being able to, politely and happily work hard during the day. Not everyone's like, but that's fine. Yes, as we sort of come towards the end of the interview, I guess I had a couple of questions just about some things that we uh, didn't, didn't talk about too much in depth before. One of those was that you did some, 
some volunteering. Can you tell us a little bit about in what context that was and was it, was it related to Offal at all? Yeah, I think I did. I did in um, fourth year of work. I went to Indi- like northern India, like a region of northern India, and um, just ran an internet fundraiser beforehand. It's a group called Unite for Sight, and the motivation was I think we funded cataract surgery for people in that area, and actually moved a lot of um, glasses to them. So a lot of Australians donate old spectacles, mm-hmm. and then I, f- I. Physically flew over bags of glasses to these people as well, and that was probably more beneficial in terms of vision than the actual surgeries we ended up doing, which is interesting when I reflect on that, like you have no idea that actually the problem is access to glasses around the world, mm. and that puts that and then that's put things into perspective quite nicely and then I spent about two weeks living with this surgeon and his family and we'd go to his clinic and it sort of all culminated in like a weekend where he set up an operating theatre and villagers would send the people with eye conditions who had been pre-assessed somewhere for cataract surgery to that place, that camp for a weekend. And he did, you know, 150 surgeries in 72 hours or something Oh God! Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And was able to see everyone the day after, and it's sort of like those images you see of Fred Hollows doing that sort of stuff. This man was doing that in India. Yeah, Um, that's amazing. And just to watch how physically they coordinated that was really impressive. And then the compromises—not the compromises, but the the resourcefulness they had to use to achieve the surgeries, like with the equipment and the the nursing staff. Like there was these dudes who were nurses, and they did the anaesthetic, and they um, assessed the patients beforehand, and they were optometrists. Like they were incredible people, and it was just like this circum the circumstances that they were under meant they just had to have all these amazing skills. So I just thought there are heaps of things I saw there that I was like I was amazed how effective a group of people can be in given circumstance. And I think it's a bit hard to see that as much in, um, in Australia. And then I, I did a week last year just helping out in Broome. There's an Outback Vision van yeah. um, that goes around Western Australia. Mm-hmm. And they, um, they was just set up somewhere for a week and uh, assess as many patients as they can and um, actually provide a lot of important treatment and monitoring and that was like wow this is amazing these these people are actually you know changing a lot of people's lives and having a really good time at the same time and having a really meaningful career just by doing this alone yeah um, absolutely. and they're not compromising too much they're traveling around australia you know seeing amazing places and meeting amazing people so the actual life um that's possible for surgery and ophthalmology doing something like that you know that w- that was pretty interesting to me i like to do stuff like that i think like you know when we think about ophthalmology it's always like the image of fred hollows kind of yeah. comes to mind i think that's one of the unique things about ophthal even as a specialty is that you know you do see a lot of ophthalmology related interventions in low resource setting you can't do you know what you did but for neurosurgery right it's just not logistically possible yeah yeah um it's funny isn't it yeah is that is that like a is that um you know in terms of the ongoing kind of like that public health aspect maybe even to to what you do in ophthalmology 
Is that something that you plan on continuing doing once you, you know, progress more through your career? And, you know, if so, as like junior doctors, if we're interested in doing similar things, like, do you have any advice for us about how we could go setting that up? You know, whether it's surgical or not. Personally, I think I would love to, I would like to do that very much. And there is actually so much work to do in Australia in particular. And then it's actually will come down to how much time I dedicate to doing that. But I have every intention of doing that. As a, as a student, I think that it's always a bit hard because you like to contribute, but your skills aren't like that of the surgeon. But actually, in all of those settings, since it's so low resource, there's always, it's always useful to have someone else there, an ally there. So I just think that if you've somehow chosen a specialty that you're interested in, almost all of them will have some capacity to help regional or rural Australia, for instance. Then doing that, early on in your career just you just have to dedicate a week or two of your actual holidays you know you don't get given time off for this sort of stuff unfortunately i think that could only it would be amazing i think it would be an amazing thing to do as an intern or or second year resident or something like that and not just from the secondary gain of you having done something that maybe the your colleagues have not done but actually would shape you as a person in looking back on you know what we've talked about over the last hour hour and 15 minutes you know all these different steps and sort of these decisions that you've had to make along the way how much do you think of where you are today is because of being at the right place at the right time and how much of it do you think is because of the work and the the effort that you've really put in towards working towards your current position as a a registrar it's hard to understate how much of it is just being in the right place right time and I think you're always, you know, they're sort of related, you know, you're working hard to be at the right place. But like a lot of, a lot of where I am is a lot hinged on like one interview, like that I got the job at the Alfred in second year and like everything sort of stemmed from that. Everyone will will get given these opportunities and then, you know, the differentiator is your processes rather than your goals, you know, like, yeah. but, but I think that I would say that heaps of it is just, is dumb luck <laughs> sometimes <laughs> and i've just worked i've just worked as hard as other people i think and then remained a reasonable candidate and but but was fortunate in like just getting some good jobs and meeting good people knowing what you know now would there have been anything that you've would have done differently earlier on i think there are some simple things i do and maybe it would have made things easier they always talk about like if you're surgically interested keep a logbook of like all the little things you do. Like that's easy advice and easy thing to do. And half the people in your interviews will have done that and the other half wouldn't have. Mm. And sometimes they ask about it and that will essentially include or exclude you from their thinking. Even like cannulas and stuff, get down into like the minutiae, like all the surgical training people, like that sort of thing. And to be more open and looking for all these strange opportunities earlier, I think like scholarships and you can get awards at uni that I didn't really know about um, doing volunteering earlier or these things all are all happening all the time. It's like checking for a fever. Like you won't know unless you look for it. Sort yeah. Of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wouldn't take away, like, you know, I wouldn't change much, much more than that. I've been lucky. And then uh, maybe the last question in terms of, good advice or bad advice that you've received maybe what do you think is the one piece of good advice that you sort of 
leaned on? Maybe what's one piece of advice that you think is something that you hear commonly, you know, hear it all the time, but maybe isn't as good as it could be? They're sort of contradictory. I think the good advice, good advice is to sort of have a backup plan, have a viable option in case something happens that it doesn't go your way. And you have to be active about that. Otherwise, you'll be at a loss um, and it'll be too late. So to culture like an interest in um, pathology or radiology or keeping an eye on how physicians training works, you know, that's not, that can't be bad advice. Like that just seems sensible. But then on the converse, I think the bad advice I got was um, that it's ultra competitive and it's very difficult to do surgical specialties. It's inherently, it's true, but that advice shouldn't be used to discourage people. It's, it's a huge deterrent. I think that the numbers for surgical specialties sort themselves out pretty well by people hearing how difficult different surgeries, surgical specialties are, and then and just not pursuing that. So that advice is useful that it sort of gets spread around and, and that opthal and plastics and stuff are quite difficult. So you can use that to your advantage a little bit. So it can be, you can sort of leverage that a little bit. And just like a lot of people have stopped trying to do this before they even started. Those pieces of advice are sort of counter to each other a little bit. I think you can use that to your advantage a bit. The one thing I'll say, ENT is very difficult. <laughs> ENT is very difficult to get onto. <laughs> I don't know why. I just meet a lot of people who found it very hard mm. and um, they have ultra low numbers and stuff. I don't understand it as well as those people, but I thought about it, doing it for a while and decided against it pretty early. Yeah. And I was happy that I did that. Yeah. In retrospect. Yeah. I don't know what, what it is about ENT. Yeah, I've, I'm, not, I'm not too sure either. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess the, the final question that we always like to ask is, um, what will you be up to this weekend? I mean, you've got the new baby at home. But, oh, yeah. uh, is, do you have anything else planned at all? Uh, well, I'm working tonight and hopefully it's, it's been really quiet actually, which you, you might imagine. But I've got my fantasy football draft tomorrow. So we play... Um, fantasy premier league we've been playing it for like 10 years yeah um and normally we get together in real life and do this draft where we all pick players for the year but we have to do it on computer yeah tomorrow <laughs> so it'll be like a quarter as fun as yeah. normal. Uh, but i'm still actually looking forward to it so much seeing those guys um and then i've got a study on sunday and then the rest of the time will be with anna and ellie obviously I don't want to keep you for any more of your time today. Like it would have been really interesting to talk about exam prep and that whole world of things, I guess, in terms of like, once you are a registrar and you're sort of coming towards the end of that training process. But Nick, I'd just like to say thank you so much for your time today for what's been a very transparent and and open conversation about how life is as a registrar, what training is like, and particularly for not just for me, but for all of the other students who are coming towards the end of medical school and starting and thinking about entering the workforce next year. I think the sort of things that we've talked about today will be practical um, and also help us to give a bit of bigger picture perspective and maybe even help us to have a conversation with a senior registrar and <laughs> tell them that we're interested in surgery. So thank you so much for, for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Jason. It was heaps of fun and I'd love to, to come back maybe when we can see each other in person. Absolutely, that'd be, that'd be yeah. great. You should definitely tee that up. 
Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode of the Time Out Podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us in the future, please consider subscribing to the show on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. If you'd like to contact us or have any thoughts that you'd like to share, please do so via our Facebook page, The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would like to thank our two major sponsors for 2020, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support. Please find in the show description a link for the Department of Surgery's e-learning module entitled Pathways to Career Progression, as well as two links from MIPS for students. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would also like to thank Michelle Andrews, who is the co-host of the Shameless podcast, for her support in helping us to put this program together. You can find the Shameless podcast on Apple and Spotify podcasts as well. This episode was edited by Karen Gunatilaka and Alex Grogan. Special thanks to Jenny Pham and Rashan Kari for their help in organizing today's guests. My name's Jason and I hope that you'll tune in again soon.